When I made the decision to document the storage papers in the form of a podcast, I found Anchor to be the easiest way to create it. By using Anchor, I'm able to share this show with you absolutely free. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place, and you can produce the show right from your phone, tablet, or computer. Their easy-to-use creation tools allow anyone with the app to record and edit a podcast so it sounds great. They'll even distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere podcasts can be found. That includes Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. You can also easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And let me know when you do so I can check out your show. This podcast frequently contains graphic depictions and other topics or material that may be considered sensitive for some listeners. Nightmares, anxiety, and or difficulty sleeping may ensue. Discretion is advised. You are listening to The Storage Papers. Episode 23, Brianne Scanlon. In today's episode, I'll be reviewing some of Ron Hammond's notes from a client meeting with Brianne Scanlon. The contents of these notes, in my mind, warranted a direct conversation with Ron for a few reasons, but I'll get to that later. Ron's notes from home visitation of Brianne Scanlon, February 9th, 2016. Brianne Scanlon called me Monday, yesterday, night, asking to speak with me first thing in the morning. She didn't want to come into the office and said it was easier to show me what she needed to show me from her own home. She sounded exhausted. I arrived at her apartment near Balboa Park around 8 a.m. in the morning, and I brought her a coffee. Black, no cream, no sugar. I'd noticed how she took her coffee in a couple of earlier meetings. In fact, I couldn't recall ever seeing her without some kind of caffeinated beverage in hand in any of the interactions I've had with her. It must be a nurse thing. When I rang the doorbell, I couldn't hear any signs of movement indicating she was even home. So I rang a second time and followed it up with a few loud knocks. It startled me when I heard the deadbolt being unlocked because I hadn't heard any footsteps approaching the door, and when she opened it, I was almost unsettled at her appearance. I've seen her without makeup before, and she's the type that's really pretty no matter how much effort she puts into herself to look presentable but today was different. As the door cracked open, the first thing I noticed were her eyes. They were squinted so much that they were nearly closed, hiding from the light of the open doorway and straining to make contact with my own eyes. I asked if she was okay, 
and she sounded groggy in her response, saying, Um, yeah, sure. She sounded kind of confused. Perhaps I did wake her up. As the door swung open, I got a sense of her skin tone, which looked different as well. Normally she looks somewhat tanned with an olive complexion. Today she looked extremely pale, almost to the point of having a grayish hue. Her hair was knotted, which I noticed as she brought her forearm up against her forehead to shield her eyes from the sunlight coming in through the open door. She had on sweatpants and an oversized t-shirt. I had obviously woken her up. I wondered if she forgot about our phone call last night. I came through the doorway and closed it behind me quickly to stop letting bright light inside, and it took me a few moments to allow my eyes to adjust to the dark. I held out a tall cup of coffee that I brought her, and she did a little widening of the eyes that told me she was thankful, though she didn't verbally express it. As she took her first couple of sips of coffee, I began to gaze around the room, which was also in disarray. Fast food wrappers and pizza boxes were spread out all over the coffee table and on the floor. Blankets were on the couch, and dirty dishes overflowed in the kitchen sink. On the counter next to the sink, there were a few empty wine bottles, and there was an odor of something rotten coming from the kitchen, most likely the garbage disposal. She told me the living room was a mess, and invited me to sit down at her small dining room table in the kitchen. When I asked her if she was okay, she said, Absolutely fucking not, in somewhat of a slurred manner. Was she drunk? Then she put her face in her hands and began crying. I stood back up and walked over to put my hand on her shoulder, and I asked her what was going on. She said everything, and apologized for her inability to maintain composure. So I said, let's take it from the top. What's changed since we last spoke? proceeded to tell me about some of the things she'd been experiencing over the past few weeks. She was in trouble at work over missing shifts that she couldn't even remember if she called out for. She claimed she was missing time, that there were multiple occurrences of hours and sometimes even days that she couldn't recall from her memory. Last night when she called me to set up the meeting, she claimed that she didn't even know where she was for the last two days and that the duration of these events was getting longer. She also claimed that she was having what she initially thought were dreams, though now she believes them to be real experiences, and these things have been happening to her for nearly a year, even up to the moment when I first met her, though she only recently realized this. When I asked her what she meant, she said, For example, I remember being at work at the hospital a little over a year ago, I didn't have this memory until a couple of days ago, though, when I was having one of those dreams. And then all of a sudden, I found myself disoriented while at work, not realizing how I'd gotten to the place I was sitting. I looked down, and in my hand was a USB flash drive. It's almost like I'm finally able to recall actual events that occurred, but only when I'm having these crazy dreams. I knew the answer to this already but I had to ask. What was on the flash drive? She said that she had downloaded some patient files and medical records. Specifically, history and prognosis files, surgical and imaging reports, 
and other testing results, including labs, genetic and metabolic testing. Then she explained that another one of those dreams revealed that she had put the medical records onto her own computer at some point. When she went to eject the flash drive in the dream, the date was March 7th, 2015, about one year prior to the date that she could actually recall doing this. At first, she said she wasn't certain that these were actual real events until last night. She claimed that after having one of these dreams that supposedly revealed a real-life memory, she woke up and decided to go to her computer to look for these files that she'd downloaded. Well, she found them, with some additional information as well. All her new memory, or so we'll refer to it as, revealed the medical documents she previously discussed. There were additional files, including some video footage of a hotel parking lot and a strange person behaving oddly. She said she watched until the end of the video, where the individual looked as if his head turned completely around, walked toward the camera, and she believed it was Malcolm. For some reason, whether it was the emotional tension of the moment or the stress, she recalled packaging and shipping the flash drive to her brother Ben. What she didn't recall was whether or not they even discussed it afterwards. My hunch was that she didn't provide a return address and that Ben Scanlon probably recognized the person, but didn't want to admit that he knew him for some reason. Brianne then continued to describe some other things in her dreams. Until about two weeks ago, she'd been sleeping in her bedroom, but she'd been having these horrible nightmares where she'd experience intruders in her bedroom at night. She described waking up startled, but unable to move, and being surrounded by shadowy beings. At first, they'd just stand there and stare at her. As she would attempt to move, and come to the realization that she wasn't able to, that's when they would begin to smile. The closer these beings got, the more she could distinguish just a couple of features. Their wide grins and their almond-shaped, solid black eyes. The more she would struggle to move, the more entertained they seemed to be, until eventually, they would all reach out and start touching her. Their hands would run all over every inch of her body, grabbing and squeezing every inch of skin including in many inappropriate places. It was painful, she said, humiliating and violating, and it would fill me with shame because they all seemed to be enjoying themselves, and I was somehow letting it happen. She wasn't sure how long this would occur for because it seemed like time would slip away. Eventually, she would try to distract her mind from the whole thing and think of something else as it was all going on. And that's when she would notice a very different sensation. Almost as if their hands became ghost-like, she said they would pass through her skin and the pain would temporarily subside. She said, I could see their hands permeating through my body as I looked at their faces. The smiles would be gone. 
There was a frantic, almost worried look on their faces now, like they were searching for something that they just couldn't find. They were angry, and they became violent. They were all trying to push one another aside for a chance to reach through my body and feel around for whatever it was they were looking for or trying to grasp. And as I slowly began to regain my ability to move again, I would see a strobe of light flash. Always three flashes. Then screams of agony while they scurried away. It's almost as if I was being protected by this light somehow. She said these dreams were recurring, and then she walked me into her bedroom. On the walls, I could see outlines of humanoid-looking shapes. It instantly reminded me of the images in textbooks you see from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs, where the detonation flash permanently created shadows on structures and cement. There were several shadows, each of them with a distinguishable shape, and it appeared as if they had been created multiple times over. Brienne pointed to the walls and said, Here's some physical evidence for you. Then she pulled up her shirt to reveal her stomach, which was covered in bruises. She said, And there's another effect of the dreams. She looked like she'd been beaten badly. I encouraged her to seek medical attention, but she declined, saying, That's not the kind of help I need. After lowering her shirt, Brienne led me back to the living room where she laid down and covered up with a blanket. She asked if I wouldn't mind staying for a couple of hours to be there with her while she attempted to get some kind of sleep and to see if I could witness anything in case one of her supposed dreams happened again. I thought it was actually a pretty good idea, and asked if I could browse through the files on her computer to see if I could notice some kind of pattern or pull a piece of pertinent information out of them. She told me to knock myself out. As I began viewing these files, I realized there were literally thousands of patient records included. I asked if she'd taken a good look at them, but... She was already sound asleep, so I decided to make a list of things that I noticed about them, along with some questions for follow-up. Number one. The medical folders aren't named according to patient name or medical record numbers. Instead, they seem to be some kind of letter-number combination, but all begin with the letter H so far. How are they organized? Number two. There are symbols associated with each of the folders. At first glance, I have seen several, including some that are either duplicated or have more than one symbol that can be cross-referenced between multiple files. Number three. Can these files be indexed by patient name, date of birth, etc.? Look into creating a database, as well as the amount of time it would take and cost considering outsourcing. Number four, cross-reference cases with my own files. There may be nothing there, but I have a hunch. Number five, follow up on the homicide that occurred at the hotel where the attached video took place. Who was the victim? Still unidentified? 
obtain autopsy report. Number six, check formatting of file storage. There are more folders within each of the primary folders, but a few of them have extra folders that don't appear to have medical records in them, but do pertain seemingly non-medically related information. Is this a consistent pattern? I spent the better part of the afternoon going through these files, not realizing how much time had gotten away from me in the process. Brienne seemed to sleep soundly the entire time, despite the frantic clacking of keys and clicking of the mouse I was doing. I did note one additional item that I'd like to follow up on, though I'm not quite sure how yet. There were a total of seven folders on the drive that were password encrypted, and I know I'm going to need some help unlocking those. The only information I could see without these passwords were the file sizes. They were monstrous. Either they contained a lot of media, pictures and videos, or a shit ton of text-based files. When Brienne woke up, it was early evening. I asked if she knew the passwords for those folders, and she attempted to use a few passwords that she'd created for software and systems at work, but she was unsuccessful. That's the end of Ron's notes from the specific day. Here on the Storage Papers podcast, I've only shared a small percentage of the files in my possession publicly compared to those I've read, and those I've read are but a fraction of a percent of the total number of files. After initially reading what I just shared with you, the listeners, I felt compelled to call Ron and ask some questions, specific to some other files relating to the medical records mentioned here, as well as the current state of Brienne. Ron shared that he was in touch with Brienne regularly, but her disposition had become rather despondent. Over the last several months, she's fallen into a deep depression. She's had continued trouble at work and is undergoing psychotherapy on a bi-weekly basis. Ron said she's dulled her dreams with medication, convincing herself that they're not real, at least for the time being, until we're able to figure out a way to free her from the oppression of the Grinner whom she believes is doing all this. I've got to admit, I feel somewhat bonded to Brienne, though I've never met her. While there is more documentation to uncover about who or what the Grinner actually is, Ron shared that over the last few years, he's solicited the help of various priests who are skilled in the rite of exorcism. Some have been successful, at least for a period of time, in relinquishing the Grinner's grasp on Brienne, even if only temporarily. She'd go for a period of weeks and sometimes months without the dreams and visitations, but when she'd start to show real progress, he would return. Every time she experiences this cycle, the fight in her leaves a little bit, and Ron clearly expresses that he fears she will not be able to fight much longer without a permanent solution. He believes he has one, and plans to fill me in very soon. With Ron's permission, I've expressed interest in adding my own notes to these files after conducting some of my own additional research. Research regarding the oppressive effects taking place for Brienne. (laughs) 
I did some of my own reading and research into the demon we refer to as the Grinner. I still won't share his name, especially now after what I've learned, though it's documented multiple times within the papers. I connected with a friend of mine who I've worked with on a couple occasions doing paranormal investigations. My friend, who has asked to remain anonymous to protect his privacy, is a theologian and demonologist. When I presented the demon's name to him, he asked me to give him a week or two to visit the archives and present what he found. I guess I was a little surprised that he hadn't heard the name before. About ten days after that, he asked me to meet him at a cemetery about an hour outside of the city. I thought this was odd, but he explained that there was a reason for it, in addition to it being on holy ground. He also admitted to listening to the Storage Papers podcast to get some context regarding my reason for looking into this. I suppose additional listeners never hurts. He was able to reference two aliases for the name of the demon possessing Malcolm Foy. He explained that this particular demon was not a low-level demon, but a higher-ranking one in high favor with Lucifer himself. The Grinner, in the spiritual realm, commands 30 legions of demons and has been promoted to the rank of High President in Hell. He is also very old, being one of the original angels cast out of heaven when Lucifer fell. You see, most average run-of-the-mill demonic entities simply run around looking for opportunity and pouncing on the weak. These older ones are more reserved, making calculated moves. They have the power to influence masses. They are eloquent and often charismatic, and they show patience and restraint when needed in order to set the stage for longer-term plans. A human lifespan is a blink of the eye for them to wait for conditions to be right in order to accomplish a goal. My theologian friend took a little bit of extra effort that I hadn't counted on, though. He shared information as we walked through the cemetery until we stopped. He noted something very different with the reported behavior of the Grinner compared to the literature he'd referenced. According to current knowledge, he has grown in power to influence multiple people, and to come and go as he pleases, and only seems slightly inconvenienced by the rite of exorcism performed in his victims. There's a missing piece to this puzzle, he said. He's gone millennia without these abilities, and then suddenly he's grown in power? It just didn't add up until I started digging around for information on the Scanlans. He stopped speaking for a second, turned and looked at the gravestone next to us. Then he continued, saying, There's information I'm not able to share with you here and now due to the oath I took to gain my current position. But the information is there for you to discover if you follow the right leads. The Scanlans are holding back information from you and your friend Ron. Perhaps even Ron is holding something back. We can't prove this, but it's a theory I've been compiling for a few years now that when Lucifer grants additional power and authority in hell to one entity, an equal amount must be taken away from another entity, or even a group of them, as I fear the case may be with your Grinner. This power, however, has to be earned. Try to think of the ways he interacts with you and the Scanlans. Does he know intimate details about you that nobody else does? Has he exploited your fears? Is he capable of possessing multiple people at the same time? 
It might help you to keep a journal of your experiences, as well as everyone else's. My mind was churning with thoughts about how this additional power and new abilities could be earned, but I couldn't recall finding anything in the papers preceding the information I've already shared. It took a moment, but I noticed him still looking at the headstone. When I turned to look at it myself, I was blown away. It read, Here lies Melanie Foy, beloved daughter and sister who gave her life for the cause. must have worn an expression of perplexion on my face because my friend then encouraged me to look into the people, meaning the Scanlans, and now assumably the Foys, and then the spiritual side of things will make more sense. thought it would have been the other way around. After sharing my own insights and some of this research with Ron, I believe I must have somehow earned an element of his trust. He divulged some major details regarding this plan for dealing with the Grinner. He believed that, in addition to the power the clergy could bring to the battle, he would also need to recruit the help of a more supernatural nature. If you recall, he'd been seeking out Lucas Stone for some time and finally managed to connect with him and with Preston Nicholson. I must admit, his plan sounded batshit crazy. But at the end of the day, all of this stuff really sounds that way. Ron really seemed to be excited to share the details of his plan with me. He was almost giddy. Yet still, I sensed an element of restraint. Perhaps over time he'll become more transparent, and I know what you're thinking, but I can't share details about his plan until we've carried it through. I can say now, though, I feel like I'm officially part of the team, for whatever that's worth, and you won't have to wait long for those details. I asked Ron what the next steps were. He said it's time to pull everyone together. We need to lay out and rehearse our plan and find a way to lure the Grinner out. Thankfully, he said, that won't be the difficult part thanks to you. He said he'll send word soon regarding when and where to meet up with everyone. Thank you for listening to The Storage Papers. Please visit our website at thestoragepapers.com where you can find all the latest information about the show, including our social media accounts and other various ways you can connect with us. This episode was written and performed by Jeremy Enfinger. Special thanks to Nathan Lunsford for web design and episode art. Sound effects and music by Zapsplat. Episode music by Cody Ditzenberger. Additional episode music by Kevin McLeod at incomptech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. I'll be back very soon with another case file for you and some updates from real-life things going on present day. Stay tuned.